0: Hi, this is Danielle, author of Tales of a Disneyland cast member and former Disneyland Resort cast member, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic.
1: Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more, right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane.
2: Welcome to Episode 41 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, we begin a three-part interview with Brian Levine. If you've been to Disneyland, well, ever, you've seen and probably ridden at least one of the attractions he worked. The Disneyland Railroad and the Main Street vehicles. In fact, if you were there pre-Disney California Adventure, you were also part of the other area he worked, the parking lot. These two main attractions, though, the Railroad and the vehicles, have always fascinated me, so I was very excited to talk to Brian. In this episode, Brian talks about how he got started working at Disneyland. He had a really great attitude when he was applying. What the train conductor does. What he liked best about being a conductor. His favorite parts of the railroad route. Being the conductor in the Lilybell Interesting Disneyland train history. Bringing the trains out from the roundhouse and taking it back in. Some of what makes Main Street special working the motorized Main Street vehicles, including which one was his favorite, something special he did on occasion for guests who wanted to view the parade, state fair, and blast to the past. Now, if you've never heard of these last two things, you have got to listen to this part. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and start this story.
1: On September 22nd, 2004, Oceanic Flight 815 left Sydney, Australia, bound for Los Angeles and crashed on a remote and mysterious island somewhere in the South Pacific. The survivors quickly realized this was no ordinary island.
3: The groundbreaking Emmy Award-winning drama, Lost, ran on ABC television from September 22, 2004 to May 23, 2010, and remains, to this day, one of the greatest television series of all time. Relive every moment of this amazing series as we reopen the hatch and take you deep inside each episode of this epic series. My name is Joyce.
1: And I'm Al. And on our show, Lost Flight 815, we'll cover each episode of this immensely popular series in a unique way. We'll watch the show as we record and share our thoughts and lost facts while you listen to the episode with us
3: so tune in to the lost 815 podcast and visit us on the web at www.lostflight815.com and relive one of the greatest shows of all time
1: and be sure to follow us on twitter at LostFlight 815 and now this week's interview on stories of the magic
2: It's always fun for me to talk to someone who's worked in an area of Disney inside or outside the parks that I haven't touched on before, and today I get to do just that. Brian Levine is one of those people. Brian comes from a Disney family, with his Disney connection actually originating with his dad. He worked in the park himself though in three areas that are new to this show. The Disneyland Railroad, the parking lot, and Main Street vehicles. He was also there for a couple of special events and promotions. Now, since working at Disneyland, he's maintained a connection with Disney through the Disneyland Alumni Club, continued friendships, being an annual pass holder, and a unique collection that we'll talk about. This is going to be fun, so let's dive in. Brian, welcome to Stories of the Magic.
4: Randy, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me, and let me tell you, I really enjoy every one of your episodes.
2: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to have you on, and... Looking forward to this. Uh, to start off, could you tell me uh, how you got started at Disneyland and what you did there? I kind of touched on it briefly, but let's really dig into it.
4: I think it it, it goes back to the... I grew up in Southern California and I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and always loved going to Disneyland. It was my choice of places to go. It was either that or you know, Magic Mountain or Knott's Berry Farm, and I always wanted to go to Disneyland, and in nineteen eighty six I was working at the Ralph's grocery store chain, bagging groceries for an exciting four dollars and fifty cents an hour. <laughs> and had been there for a year, uh had gotten somewhat frustrated with what was going on at Ralph's. They weren't promoting people, they had just been sued by some minorities uh some minority groups and they were promoting people to satisfy that lawsuit and I just decided that I wasn't having any fun there Um, and I I had some friends that worked at Disneyland my dad had been involved down there and I decided you know what I'm gonna hop in the car I've got an annual pass if the worst thing that happens is when I put in my application I'll go into the park and hang out for the day and I drove down there put in my application I uh, got a phone call back about six, eight days later, scheduled for the three-on-one interview. Drove back down to Disneyland, 45 miles, and again with the idea that, you know what, I'll go down there and I'll bring a change of clothes and go into the park and have fun. Uh, had the three-on-one interview and then got a phone call back for a one-on-one interview. And this is going, again, this is the 1986 when I think there was probably 6,000 applicants for about 1,000 summer seasonal jobs. Uh, My final one-on-one interview was with my supervisor for the area, Sal Ramirez. And like many of your uh, previous guests, I was a little surprised that they had me interviewing with him because I had asked, they asked, where, you, where do you want to work? And I had mentioned that my dream job would have been to be on the Jungle Cruise. And somebody in casting thought that I was the perfect fit for a to be a train conductor on the Disneyland Railroad. And they brought in Sal Ramirez, who's the, uh, uh, the supervisor for the for the attraction at that time and sat down with me and told me a little bit about the trains, and I'd really never thought about it, except I knew that it was the first ride you went on when you got into the park, because it was open 20 minutes before everything else. And I thought, well, okay. I talked to him, and said, that'd be fun. And he said, great, we'll get back to you. Then I left and was left hanging again, waiting for another phone call which I uh, finally got, and I think this all took place over uh, five weeks before I finally started on, I believe it was June 26th, was my first day of training.
2: Okay, wow. So it was a little bit of a drawn-out process there, but like you said, you always had that backup for the day of at least you could go into Disneyland, and that was the worst thing that could happen, so...
4: If anything, I had my annual pass, and I'd hop in, you know, I'd go into the park and hang out and walk around for a little bit, and go on a couple of rides. And the gift giver extraordinaire was going on, so I had a chance to win a big prize anyway.
2: <laughs> oh, nice! There you go. <laughs> um, now, for people who maybe see the Disneyland Railroad and they see the people who work it, but they don't necessarily know what position is called what, what does the train conductor do?
4: The train conductors are the two people that, or one person if you're at Disney World, that actually load and unload the people on and off the train. They'll do some of the uh, some of the narration or some of the spiel. But the main thing is the safety of unloading and loading the train and making sure that everybody's seated and everything's going along fine while you're on the train. Uh, in most cases, we had a recorded narration, so we didn't have to worry about it. But we were also required to know the narration in case the recording broke.
0: Hmm,
2: interesting. Did you ever actually have to do it?
4: Absolutely. Uh, in fact, it was kind of a it was kind of a bit of a hazing to new conductors to fake that the recording had broken and then refer it back to the person on the back of the train or the other you know, the other new conductor and make him do the narration. But, uh, yeah, there was times that he had to do it, and then there was also times when we were at home at family things or out with friends when people wanted me to do the narration for them, and I could remember a lot of it back then. I can barely remember some of it now, but... <laughs> We were the ones that also yelled all aboard and, and loaded the loaded the train. We had uh we had all aboard yelling contests amongst the conductors to see who could do it the loudest, who could do it the longest. But it was also it was a lot of fun. I think what I what I really enjoyed about it most was once once the train got going, you were hopped on the front of the train right in front of a couple of people sitting on the sitting on the seat in the train and you really got a chance to spend some time with those guests and talk to them for the next five minutes until you got to the next station.
2: Yeah, I remember sitting in spots frequently that are right there at that conductor, and that is always a fun part of it, even from a guest perspective.
4: And then sometimes you had to make sure and get out of their way if they wanted to see what was going on, especially when you went into the Grand Canyon or the Primeval world. Sometimes some conductors would kneel down, but we were supposed to stay up so that we could see see if there was any mischief going on on the train.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What was like? Kind of was there sort of a favorite section that you had, like between one station and another, that was the most interesting to you, or that got the most guest reaction, or anything like that? That this was kind of your favorite spot along the the train tracks.
4: I really. I really loved from the time the train pulled into the Frontierland station because when the when the train pulls in it's coming in behind New Orleans Square and there's a little bit of a you're coming out of the jungles of Adventureland and you can hear some of the jungle crews. When you pull into the train station, that's the original Frontierland train station that used to be over in Frontierland before they before they expanded the park to make it around to then Bear Country. And eventually, critter country, but the the theming of that station was to me my favorite. It had the telegraph that was playing walt's dedication speech uh, it had a real working semaphore that would come down when the train was coming, so we could if we were working at the station, which occasionally during busy times there'd be a conductor that would be at each station to help assist the the conductors that were on the trains, loading the train up. Uh, if you were standing at that at that station, you had plenty of time to talk to the guests and visit with them and ask questions. But I I'd always try to find some little kid, and I could see the semaphore go down out of the corner of my eye, and I'd tell the kid you know something if you you know if you snap your fingers three times or whatever the whatever it was they were able to do the train pretty soon you'd hear a train whistle and the train would come right through that tunnel and the kid would do it and then of course all of a sudden here comes the train and it was just like they like they were the ones that actually made the train come but little did they know that I knew that from the time that semaphore came down I had about 30 seconds before the train was going to come through that tunnel uh mm mm-hmm. I love that part that frontier land station in and out and then the the other part that I really enjoyed, just because it was always a little bit cooler during the summertime and was a little more interactive, was the uh, was the backside of Rivers of America, because uh, you'd come around there and you'd get to see the the same stuff that the Mark Twain would see. You'd also see people doing the canoes and you you'd see all kinds of river traffic, and it was just. It was a great way to take a whole bunch of attractions and give them the same show, but from a slightly different perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was always a little cooler back there because it was heavily shaded and the water was wet, so you'd get a little breeze off the off the river. But always loved that part too.
2: That is a really nice part of it. Yeah. So, did you ever get to ride in the tender seat on engines one or two?
4: Yeah, I got to ride up there more often than I than I wanted to 'cause if we were if they were running us out to be to go out and work a station, instead of sitting on another spot out there with the with the guests, we could go sit up there up in front and just kinda ride deadhead out there. Uh the spot that I like to ride in if I was if it was out on the line was if we were just going out to a station or going to lunch or something. And there was nobody in the Lily Bell or the caboose on Retlaw 2, we could go hop back into the Lily Bell or hop into Retlaw Law 2's caboose and ride back there on the way to lunch or on the way out to the next station that we had to work. So spent a lot of time in the Lily Bell.
2: Oh, I bet. That's a much more comfortable place to ride than most of the other seats on the train,
4: except if it's except yeah. if it's a hot day, and in most cases the Lilybell's windows were closed all the time. It could get a little stuffy mm. in there.
2: I could see that more comfortable seating, but stuffier air yeah,
4: so anytime we had a Lilybell guest coming, they'd try to let us know in advance to go back, and whoever was on that train would go back and make sure and open up the windows for a at least a fi- you know at least 5 minutes worth of fresh air.
2: Mhm. So so did you ever ride in the Lily Bell with guests and kind of be their conductor?
4: Uh yeah, anytime we put somebody back there, we were supposed to stay back at least on the platform of the front of the Lily Bell so that we could keep an eye on them cuz there there had been some situations where there was some damage to to stuff inside the car and mm-hmm. a lot of that was a lot of the contents of the Lily Bell was original to Walt because if, if you go back in history, uh, Walt personally owned the steam trains or the Disneyland Railroad and the monorail. They were part of Wed, so that's why all the uh, all the trains were then called Retlaw, which was uh, yeah, Retlaw was the name of the company that. Technically operated the trains, but they were all under Walt's own family name, and a lot of his own memorabilia was back there. So uh, until eighty, nineteen eighty four, eighty five, when Retlaw was merged into the rest of the park and Wed was brought in and made into WDI, uh, that was kind of a little special haven back there that not too many people got into. And if we put a guest in there, you're darn right, we were going to stay back there with them and make sure that absolutely nothing happened, because otherwise we'd be looking for a new job the next day.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> so did you ever end up with any interesting passengers back there in the lily
4: Lots and lots and lots of VIPs, uh, lots of company dignitaries. I personally had Oral Hershiser, who is the... Uh, uh, pitcher for the Dodgers the years in eighty eight when they won the World Series. Uh, I had him in the Lily Bell with a with a bunch of other VIP guests or ex you know, escorts with them. Um, I had Michael Eisner's wife and two of his sons back there in the Lily Bell when I was on, but of course it was just, you know, open up the chain, open unlock the door. Let everybody else take care of and close the door. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than that, I didn't have anybody of any notoriety that I can remember. Uh, the Lily Bell was just—it was just kind of a special. It was a special thing. There were special Lily Bell tickets that you could get from uh, from city from city hall if you wanted them, if you knew the right people to get them, and then you'd have to make sure that the Lily Bell was out, and they would have to come around and wait. You'd have to wait until it got there for the ride, but I believe the Lily Bell tickets are still around if you know the right person that happens to have them.
2: They are. In fact, I'm actually looking at a pair sitting on my desk right now.
4: I wish I had a couple of them, because I never had them to give out, and when they came in, the the lead, the lead at the Main Street station was the one that collected them, so they skipped right past me. Gotcha. Hmm. Okay.
2: Uh, I have to say I've never been in the caboose. Uh what's that experience like?
4: Uh the caboose is actually very much like a 19 like a turn of the century railroad caboose. It's got a little second level inside of it where you can climb up the ladder and sit up in that little observation area and then it's got a couple of benches in the front and the back and it's uh it's all wood and not really comfortable to sit on for too long. Uh, but and there's absolutely, there is nothing plush about it. There's, the only kind of air conditioning that it has is open up the windows, and the only kind of heating it has is close the windows. <laughs> uh, but if, if anybody wants to ride on that that Retlaw Two or the red cattle car train, the one that's got seven cars and the caboose, that was one of the two original trains from opening day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other the other three trains were added on afterwards and then the Lily Bell is part of Retlaw One, which was the other original train from Opening Day.
0: Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, I tell people you know, look for the red canopy, but then also look at the number on it. And if, the, if you're looking at the 200 series, you know, 201, 202, whatever, that's one of the original sets. And and I think the Lily Bell, which was originally the Grand Canyon observation car, I think that's the last one left from the Series 100, isn't it? That
4: is the last one. The rest of them were donated to the Carolwood Pacific group and kind of donated out in areas. And I think the train, I think a couple of the cars from... The original Retlaw One are at uh, Griffith Park, and you can go see them on like the third Sunday of every month or something like that.
2: Uh, Yeah, that does sound familiar. Yeah. When I was
4: working there, it was sitting in the roundhouse on on rails, and the 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 other cars were just sitting there hanging out. And I think people that worked in the roundhouse were using it for a break room. Wow, probably. Uh, Or parts for undercarriage (laughs) for the other train cars, but. It was just sitting there. Wow. Um, Now,
2: uh, did you usually have or was there any consistency to whether you had, say, like an opening shift or a midday or a closing shift or anything like that?
4: The only consistency was was the more seniority you had, the the more choice, the better shifts you had. Uh, The first summer that I was there, I was one of five or six seasonal people that were hired in to, to help the trains. Uh, So our first shifts were anywhere between... They had to to be a minimum of four hours. But because I was low seniority, obviously I couldn't get an eight-hour shift, which was a a higher seniority shift than mine. So I was getting like four to six-hour shifts that were usually from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. to help out with lunches for the opening crew or noon to six which might have been a day when there was a fourth train on the track most busy days we had three trains but on the real peak days we'd put four trains on the track and that noon to six shift was go out go out at the roundhouse pick up that train at noon bring it out on the line run it until 545 put it back in the roundhouse and you were done at six Uh, Hmm. And that was kind of my favorite shift because I got to sleep in a little bit, and then at 6 o'clock I was off work, and I could go back to the locker room, take a shower, and then go hang out in the park at night. And I did that a lot during that summer.
2: I can imagine. So what's involved in uh, you know bringing a train out onto the tracks to, to start its
4: shift? Uh, from a conductor standpoint, uh, show up at the roundhouse, grab the radio, you had to be there on on time, and then the lead knew that you were ready. Call in for a radio check, and then you'd ask for a position on the main line, and they would they would start to line up the trains to where they wanted you. So about five, anywhere between, like, two to ten minutes after you called in, they'd call back and tell you to come out behind whatever train they wanted you to come out behind, and they'd tell you where it is. And at that point, they'd start to... Tell the other trains to hold at Frontierland Station until cleared, or hold at Main Street, because you'd rather have a train holding in a station than holding out on the line somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, as the conductor, when the when that train that you were to come out behind passed, you ran out to ran out to the switch, which was right behind the Submarine Voyage and the Fantasyland Autopia. Uh, run out there, throw the switch wave to the engineers they'd bring the train out you as the front conductor you'd get on the train as it was coming by the rear conductor would ride out come out close the switch once the train went by hop on wave it all aboard and we were off to the Tomorrowland station and then you'd let the you'd let train control know that the train was cleared and that the and that the line was switched back so that the trains could continue uh, and then taking it off was almost the same thing, except in reverse. Hmm. Okay. And then we had to walk all the way from harbor from the Harbor House entrance. We'd have to walk from our lockers at the at the old Harbor House entrance all the way back to the Roundhouse, which was behind uh, Small World, and it butted up. It still does. It butts up right against where I five or Interstate five exits onto uh, onto Harbor Boulevard. So you had to walk that whole thing mm-hmm. back there. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a hike. Yeah. yeah, A whole lot longer than leaving, than walking off of the Main Street Station and being back in your locker in two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> and then if you had a lunch or something, I used to bring a little lunchbox. And if you had that, then you had to walk all the way back to the station to pick that up. So, all right. Wow.
2: That's probably most of your lunch break, walking back and then walking back to your station again. (laughs) Spent a lot of time walking. That's good
4: exercise. Yeah. I didn't need it back then. I do now. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that always the way? My mom said that there there were two requirements for hiring onto the trains. You were either a tall, skinny, young guy or a short, round, older guy because that was the two sizes of costumes that they had because we were all either tall, skinny, <laughs> young guys or short, round, old guys. <laughs> I guess that helps streamline costuming a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we either have 34 regular or 46 extra large. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, Now,
2: how long did you do uh, the, the train conductor role?
4: Uh, for the four and a half years that I was... Well, four years plus an extra summer, so almost... Uh, Yeah, four and a half years. I was on and off of the trains because the trains got absorbed into what's called Main Street attractions. Mm -hmm. And Main Street attractions included the railroad, uh, the Main Street vehicles, the Walt Disney story, and the parking lot. So the only time that I was really ever dedicated to the trains was the first summer. And then during the summer shift, Bids where we got based off of seniority got to pick our shifts uh, I could have I picked a train shift the second or the third summer uh I quickly got trained on main street vehicles, which uh became one of one of my favorite things to do in the park and then got bounced out into the parking lot, which is Enjoyable as it was, there was just not a lot of guest contact. When most of the time you were looking at their bumpers or their headlights or their taillights,
0: um,
2: right?
4: And yeah, yeah, it was still part of it's still part of the magic of getting to Disneyland. And I still remember that big, vast, hundred-acre parking lot and seeing people wandering around it trying to find their cars and find which way to go. And you know, the tram was their first ride in and their last ride out. And just not a lot of the uh, real good guest contact that I wanted from my job, but I spent all four and a half years uh, bouncing around those.
2: Wow, okay. Um, Did it tend to vary from week to week or even day to day, or would it be kind of a longer stint in each of those sections as you were bouncing around?
4: Uh, Summertime was dedicated to whatever shift you picked. Uh, so okay. that was that. Summer times, I did a couple of summers on Main Street on the vehicles. I did a couple of summers on the trains, and then one summer in the uh, in the parking lot. The weekends and the off season, sometimes I would I'd be out in the parking lot for a four hour shift, and they'd need somebody on the trains for four hours. So I'd pick up an extra four hours by going in and changing clothes. And next thing you know, I was a train conductor. Uh, <laughs> That's nice. Or some evenings when we were done on Main Street and after the parade, and they needed some help out in the parking lot, you'd look out in the parking lot, and there'd be a Main Street fire fire truck driver driving the parking lot tram. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd run out there after, especially after an electrical parade or right after the fireworks, we'd run out there and run an extra tram or two for. 30, 40 minutes just to just to help relieve that heavy outflow of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was varied. I mean, there's sometimes they needed an extra break over at the Walt Disney Story, and I'd go stand at the turnstile and just greet people. Uh, and I think that's one of the things I really liked about Main Street in particular was that even though it was a a routine thing, there was a lot of variety in the routine. Uh, it was summertime, and the then you had the electrical parade. And then during the off-season, you had the simple, quiet, standard Main Street. And then I'd get to work on you – know, I'd work one weekend in November, and then I'd come back the next weekend in November, and the Christmas lights were up. And you were in full-blown Christmas on Main Street. Uh, and then you had that for six weeks. And then Christmas uh, – the tree lighting and the, you know, just the different the the different atmospheres and the varying events were just uh, I looked forward to each one of them coming and coming and going. Mhm. Uh, candlelight you know, for two days you had candlelight in the middle of Christmas and that kind of shut down main street for what it really was but still it was a special event and everybody looked forward to it. Um uh, because I was on Main Street, I got to got to work pretty close to then-Vice President George Bush I, because he was coming to send off the athletes that were going off to the Olympics in Korea in 88. And he was going to be there. and We got to work with the Secret Service and seal off the Main Street station for his speech two hours beforehand. So there was just a whole variety of stuff that was going on right at that entrance of the park.
0: Well, wow.
2: and yet, with all of that, so many guests walk right by all of that stuff every day and probably don't even notice a lot of it, but they'd notice if it wasn't there
4: They certainly would notice, and they'd certainly notice that you didn't have to squeeze in and out of one of the two tunnels uh coming in or going out but I think that's the other thing that I like about main Street was that it was it was kind of a there was a, a rush and a thrill during the opening. And the first couple of hours in the morning as you see everybody coming in, and then you had that same rush and thrill at the end of this day as the electrical parade, and everybody was on main street and you'd you'd look down Main street and it would just be a sea of heads as they're watching the fireworks over the castle and then people rushing out or it was and then in the middle of the day it had its own turn of the century old town pace and feel to it that was kind of special. So you got to you got to really experience two different kinds of Main Streets on no matter what shift you were working and what area you were in on Main Street.
2: Interesting. So, I want to talk about the Main Street vehicles for a few minutes, too, because I love those, and I think driving those would be fun. Um, did you drive all of them, or was the motorized ones kind of one position and the horse-drawn streetcar another one? Yeah. Or did you have, like, a single vehicle? How did that work?
4: The uh, the horse-drawn streetcars were were their own separate thing. They were run by the Pony Farm or the Circle D Ranch, whatever you want whatever they're calling themselves. Uh, right. And they ran the they ran those. But occasionally we'd help out, and uh, if they were taking a car on and off, you, you'd help out by pulling the brake. And because when they switched the horses around to take a to take a trolley off the street. The driver didn't have any brakes at that point because the brakes were all on the original front side of the car. So you'd, you'd sit on the back and hold the brake. Uh, other than that, the Omnibus, the uh, 1903 covered horseless carriages and the fire truck were interchangeable. Uh, each one is technically has its own costume. Uh, the 1903s have a, had a terrible costume that I really I really didn't <laughs> like at all because it looked more like a uh, combination of uh, Dick Van Dyke and Main Street merchandise uh, with, a, <laughs> with a with a very not friendly straw hat and a puffy striped shirt and a vest and anyway I didn't like I didn't like it but you had to wear it. Mm-hmm. The fire truck had the had the great red shirt and the traditional policeman's hat. That was exceptionally hot during the summertime, and it had no cover to it. So you'd always see, if you're at Disneyland during the summertime or at Disney World, and you see the fire truck driver, you will notice that he will beeline to stop that truck in shade. So if you want to get on the fire truck, find the closest shade to where he's supposed to stop, because he's going to stop that fire truck right there or she now, because it's it's hot. You don't want the black seats baking in the sun because the next guest coming to sit down on there wearing shorts is going to get a whole new experience when they sit down. Yeah. Uh, loved Absolutely loved the fire truck. Uh, my final shift working at Disneyland was on the fire truck uh, just because it was probably the most photographed of all the Main Street vehicles. The kids loved it, had a great horn and the bell in the back for the kids to play with. Uh, the Omnibus was a little bit more interesting to drive. Uh, and this is this is a fun personal story because when I turned 16, I wanted my driver's license really bad. And my parents weren't ready for me to drive, and they were very nervous about me driving. When I made it to 17, they finally decided that it was okay for me to get my driver's license. Now you fast-forward almost just barely two years later, and Disneyland has now trained me to drive this two-story bus down Main Street, and it's a three-speed manual. So you're clutching and shifting, honking the horn, while narrating all with one hand driving in traffic. Wow. <laughs> and the bus you had to be careful with. You had to stay away from the horse-drawn from the horse streetcars because... The bus and the streetcars could not make it through the entries of Town Square or the Central Plaza together. There just wasn't enough room. Uh, And the bus and the streetcars couldn't pass each other if they were passing in the middle of the street. So you're always looking to see if you wanted to leave, the bus wanted to leave as the streetcars were coming into their drop-off and pickup point. So you had to deal with all that while narrating, driving up and down Main Street and smiling.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't sound easy at all.
4: No. So it was a lot of work, but it was also the slowest and easiest pace of all the vehicles because you'd go down there and you'd wait for 10, 15 people, and then you had to time yourself with the horses. So you just had this natural pace about it. And, again, I loved it because you got to – bunch of good time with guests you could take little kids or you know, and see them put them up on the bench seat next to you you could fit a family of three up there and hmm. you got some great one-on-one time with guests uh, in the old days during the slow during the slower rainier times of the year in Southern California the omnibus was one of the favorites of all the characters on the street they'd want to come over and ride the Omnibus and that way they could wave at people as they were going up and down the street and they weren't getting wet and they weren't having to walk and march around out in the rain. So I'd be driving down the street and I'd have, you know, Pluto and Goofy hanging off the back and maybe Chip and Dale sitting up in the front pestering me as I was driving. <laughs> uh, nice. But again, it was just, a lot of the I think a lot of it for me the main street vehicles weren't so much of a they weren't a a real attraction as they were more of part of the show and part of the atmosphere and yet still a functional part of the atmosphere in the show.
2: Yeah definitely an important part of it. Uh,
4: The other thing I liked about working main street vehicles was during parade times you had to stop you had to take the cars off the street you got a few extra long breaks in there and but you also did guest control for the parades. And if it was an electrical parade and you had to get set up an hour and a half before the parade, you got to spend some time talking to guests. Uh, one of my favorite things to do for guests that were having a rough time or maybe they had little kids and they didn't know that the parade was coming was we always had a couple of little areas in town square where we'd keep them clear for wheelchairs or for, mm-hmm. for people that needed viewing areas. Uh, well, we always had an extra spot or two, and if it was a really nice family and they had just really just realized that the electrical parade was coming and they couldn't get their kids up to the front or anywhere, we were able to put them in there, and it would make their day, and, and you'd see the kids light up as they were, had perfect, perfectly good views, and you got to spend some time talking to people while you were watching the ropes, and then once the parade started, it was I got to sit there and watch the parade like everybody else. We can't beat that. No. I got paid to see the Main Street Electrical Parade probably 250 times. <laughs>
2: wow. <laughs> so I've got to ask, I know you, um, and we haven't gone this far into your story or anything, but just to give people a little preview, you're out in Florida now, and you're an annual pass holder for Walt Disney World, correct?
4: I actually live in North Carolina. Uh, uh oh, okay. But we've been annual pass holders down at Walt Disney World for we moved here 13 years ago. We've had annual passes 6 or 7 times depending on how the vacations work in. Haven't had an annual pass for a couple of years lately because now I have my own son who's in college and a daughter who's in marching band in high school and a wife who decided to go back to school and get her master's degree and I'm the sole working person. Um, and every, We've got this incredibly crazy schedule but I'm trying to convince my son to do the college program down in Florida so that we have a really good reason to come down and visit them.
2: That's a really good idea.
4: <laughs> um,
2: I bring it up because I'm wondering if you've seen the Main Street Electrical Parade at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World.
4: I, the only thing I've seen there is Spectra Magic.
2: So it's been a little while. Okay.
4: Yeah. I haven't been down there since. Uh, I haven't been inside the Magic Kingdom since 2009. Okay. Uh, the the gotcha. couple of times that I have been back down there, I did get into Epcot for a day, and got over to the got over to Hollywood Studios for another day. The rest of the time, I haven't been in the Magic Kingdom since 2009. Hmm. Okay. And I'm sorry, all you Walt Disney World fans, the parade route's wrong. The parade route goes the opposite <laughs> way, and it's just wrong. I'm used to the parade. Yeah, starting at Small World, coming down Main Street, and coming around and going out to the right. And it's just wrong when it goes the opposite way.
2: (laughs) I'm sure they'll forgive you. Or if not, that's okay. (laughs) Now, you mentioned in our email correspondence that you were at Disneyland during a couple of special events, which for people who weren't there in the late 80s, they may not be familiar with these. Uh, but I know some about them, and I'm curious to hear what you've got to say about these. Uh, working Blast to the Past and the State Fair.
4: Yeah, it was it was early on in the Eisner era, and Eisner was looking in the, in the theme park, People were looking for ways to quickly build up attendance at Disneyland without having to put in a whole bunch of money into new attractions, so they started these seasonal themed parties, I guess you want to call them, or events, and the first one was Circus Fantasy where they turned Main Street and a couple other areas in and they brought in circus acts and then they had a circus parade. I didn't spend much time at all with Circus Fantasy, but it quickly got replaced with Blast of the Past, which was turning Main Street into really kind of contradictory to turning it into the 1950s. So it was kind of a blast of the future for Main Street. Uh, Right. (laughs) But during my my weekends, and boy, did I beg for these shifts like crazy because they were wonderful, Uh, we were paid to literally not – You couldn't put a guest in them, but just cruise 1950s-era cars up and down Main Street. So there I was driving a Chevy Bel Air convertible with a sweater or a letterman's jacket on and just cruising up and down Main Street as pure atmosphere. And then every once in a while, one of the local, one of the street performers that they had that looked like a couple of greasers or a couple of uh, nerdy guys would hop in the car and go for rides. Or you'd have Mickey and Minnie dressed up in nineteen fifties outfits and just cruising up and down Main Street with them. Uh, the center, in in the central plaza, they had a giant jute box that was built where the Partners statue is now, and there mm-hmm. was a DJ up there. And then that was. Uh, Blast of the Past was probably my favorite block party style show that Disney's done with the uh, the Blast of the Past street party, where they actually had performers on little scooter um, Vespa scooters cruising around and singers and dancers. It was just it was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> but to think that I got paid to drive uh, I think at one point we had a a 1957 T Bird convertible in the back. And we got to drive that up and down Main Street, just cruising it at idle because the cars wanted to go fast. They wanted to go faster than we were allowed to. Uh, and then about every 45 minutes to an hour, we were supposed to take the cars off of Main Street and go drive them in the back area and open up the engines and blow out some of the some of the buildup that had been in there from the cars idling or driving so slow. Uh, but we got lots of... I'm sure there's lots of pictures of people posing next to these cars and they'd cruise up and down main street and all you do is get people who would want to come over and take a picture with you and that was uh that was a great job uh and then in the fall they did for two years i believe they did a state fair uh kind of a that was literally like a like a county fair kind of thing where they brought in little midway games and extra little kind of food things and had pig races and had a parade that was specifically for the state fair. Uh, And I am, as far as I know, I am the first person to operate a Ferris wheel at Disneyland with an actual guest on it. Really? (laughs) Because part of the Main Main Street vehicles and steam trains crew, the trains were down the first year of that, so there's a there was a Ferris wheel up on the train tracks at the Main Street station, and then there was a Ferris wheel in the Central Plaza, right where the partner statue is, and those were 1920s, 1930s era, big Eli Ferris wheels that you'd line people up, load them on and off, run it around three times, load half on, half off, run it around three times, and uh, quite a, a physical workout, but... I was the first one to push start on the morning that we actually loaded guests onto them after setting them up and testing them and training on them. Hmm. Uh, uh, wow. And if I, I wish I could find the quote somewhere, but Walt, I remember Walt saying that he didn't want it to be like a, your average county fair with a Ferris wheel and a merry-go-round, so that's why there's no Ferris wheel, because he had a merry-go-round.
0: Uh-huh.
4: <laughs> <laughs> now, unfortunately, I killed that, but... Uh, <laughs> I didn't put the Ferris wheel there, I just ran it. And, and right. It was right. It was quite an exercise to push the you had to push the load platform so it would come up to the car and then with your other foot push the car the the car down so it would hold onto the platform and swing that open. Uh, You're sore by the end of your shift.
2: I can only imagine. It sounds exhausting. <laughs> uh,
4: but blast of the pass was by far, my favorite, and I wish they brought it back. But I think what ended up stopping those was that they were very labor-intensive events, and pretty soon you had the opening of Star Tours and Captain EO, and you had some big e-tickets coming in, coming on that were pumping up attendance.
2: Right. You didn't need those as much anymore. No
4: but now they do the Halloween parties and the Halloween events, and they do you know, a whole bunch of special stuff for Christmas, and then each summer's got its own theme or special event to it. So it's very similar to that, but these were uh, they were quite fun. Interesting. So,
2: yeah, as I understand it, they're also somewhat uh, to, I guess you could say, be given credit for the existence of the partner statue being where it is today.
4: And, and thankfully, so. because... I believe during Circus Fantasy they had the uh, the Globe of Death, which was a, a round steel cage where motorcycle riders went in this cage and zip zapped around each other in there. I, and I was really happy to see them put the Partners statue in there because I knew that they weren't going to goof around with the central plaza with that center area anymore and ruin the view of Sleeping Beauty Castle from Main Street. <laughs> but...
2: Exactly. <laughs> But it's definitely an unusual you know, series of promotions and experiences there. And I guess you got to give them credit for trying something.
4: Never would I have thought that I'd see a guy being shot out of a cannon on Main Street and landing in a big net that was strung across Main Street. But that's what happened during Circus Fantasy. Um, wow. And people loved the events, and it was something fun, because at least for for locals that were always coming out there, it was something fun. And something different for them to see.
2: Right, yeah.
4: Um,
2: at a Destination D event from D23 a couple of years ago, they had an Imagineering panel, and on it was Kathy Mangum and uh, Kevin Rafferty, who one of their first projects was the submarine voyage adaptation during Blast to the Past. <laughs> and that was actually the first time I'd heard about Blast to the Past. And they talked about coming up with this idea of... Uh, replacing, I think it was the captain's portion of the narration with songs, like song clips from the 60s. Uh, <laughs> and they explained it, just, and they looked at all, the audience for a second and said, We're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that was my introduction to the blast to the past. But it sounds like it definitely had some interesting and some fun pieces to it, even if they were a bit unorthodox.
4: I think there was a sand beach party that they brought in a bunch of sand and put it out in the uh, the area out in front of Small World. And so they had a sand beach out there and then they had a, a Jan and Dean style Beach Boys kind of style band back there. And they <laughs> Tried a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. I enjoyed driving those cars on the mountain.
3: Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, anomalies, interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee, Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A N O M A L Y podcast.com. Just one 1-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat.com
2: That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Brian Levine for being my guest, and to you for listening. Come back next time for part two. Now, if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity, and you'd like to share a positive story, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com, or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY at any time, 24 hours a day. And you know, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let's talk. That's how I connected with Brian. He emailed me. If you've been a Disney guest of any Disney experience and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or if you've had any special Disney experience you want to share, I'd love to hear from you, too. Maybe you've got a special memory of being on the train or riding one of the Main Street vehicles and you want to share that. I'd love to hear it or anything else you'd like to share. Just email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call that listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience or who you'd like to thank. In the last couple of episodes, I told you about the Indiegogo campaign to help pay for the publishing expenses for my new book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. Well, that first one didn't meet its funding goal, so I'm doing it again. As I said before, I've invested a lot of time, heart, sweat, and money into this project. But I need your help to bring it the rest of the way. I've got some great rewards I'm offering, and as little as $5 in support gets your name in the book. Now that's pretty cool, right? This new campaign ends October 22nd, so don't wait. Please go to storiesofthemagic.com slash faithmk or follow the link in the show notes for this episode to watch a video about me and the book see what rewards I'm offering, and even read some of my early endorsements. Now this is it for the campaign. I can't extend it or do another one. I just don't have time. So please go to storiesofthemagic.com faithmk or follow the link in the show notes for this episode. Be a part of making this book a reality and get something pretty cool for yourself in the process. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. The more reviews and ratings the show has, the better it shows up in lists and searches, so it's easier for people to find. And I'd like to thank the person who recently did leave a reading and a review. I'll read that to you maybe in a week or so. I haven't decided if I really want to do that on the show. But I might, just so you can get an idea of what people are writing. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening in. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google Plus. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with
1: Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.